0: Seems to me what makes for grateful people are people that know what was done for them. It's an interesting week this week. Veterans Day uh, came and went this week, and I was I was amazed at the number of people that I had reach out to me or reach out to my wife, my brother, both of my brothers were in the military as well, and say thanks, you know, being very intentional about saying thank you. Thank you for um, We had no part to play in earning our freedom, but we may have had some little tiny part to play in maintaining our freedom to some extent. And folks were just grateful this week. It was a unique Veterans Day for me, more so than previous ones. And I don't know why this one just felt especially, folks seemed especially aware. And I wonder if folks are just grateful because they have some sense now, maybe more so than in the past, of how that... Freedom was earned, what it costs, what was achieved, um, and what it costs in maintaining that freedom. I think it makes for grateful folks. Last week, I introduced the sermon with an idea or a sort of a visualization of a debt that's massive that we're born into. This thing that's so big, that's debt that's so terrible that the interest collects faster than any payments we could possibly make on it. Given that most of us have some exposure and some familiarity with debt, we could relate to that image, I think. And last week, we considered just the debt itself, how terrible it was. This week, we're going to consider what was done about our terrible debt. And next week, we're going to consider together why it was done. This week, though, turn to Ephesians chapter one, excuse me, chapter two. We're going to continue in Ephesians chapter two, and we're going to take a close look at What was done with our terrible debt? I'm going to begin in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 for the sake of context. If I can find the book in my Bible. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We spent last week developing those three verses, in some ways as the backdrop for a spotlight that would now shine, now developed through the verse three verses, at midnight you think for a moment about how valuable a spotlight is at high noon, it's not so much, but consider how valuable that spotlight would be in pitch dark at midnight. Those first three verses developed for the Gentile and for the Jew, it's midnight. And here today, beginning in verse 4, we'll consider the spotlight. Over the years, I've introduced this image, this illustration that has been in my mind, of an understanding of the gospel that follows the whole whole flow of creation where God spoke light into darkness. My grandmother had a magnolia tree in her front yard. When I was growing up, I did a lot of yard work for her. And um, one of the things that I remember specifically about this magnolia tree, if you ever had a magnolia tree, or you may have one now, you know that they make these beautiful flowers, but they have these leaves that are hard and they don't rake well, and they certainly your lawnmower certainly won't like them. And the leaves were sort of a bother, but the flowers, even the little kid could appreciate the beauty of the big, white magnolia. I've introduced the image and the illustration over the years that in some ways these first three verses develop a pitch velvet background for what comes up now in verse 4, this beautiful magnolia. Today we'll be considering... Verses especially verses 4 through 6 and some portions of the rest of the passage. So I'll go ahead and read it together. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not, as a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Since we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 4 through 6, I want to read them again very slowly, and I want to sort of immerse us into this passage. Verses 1 through 3 develop this pitch darkness, and then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God had been my favorite two words in the Bible for a long time since studying this passage. I, my first sermon that I ever prepared in seminary years ago was from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and I learned to love those two words and appreciate what those two words could have been but weren't. And what these words are instead is but God. In Greek, the words are de theos. They're very welcome words in light of verses 1 through 3. In some ways, what they do, first of all, is they introduce us to the subject of verses 1 through 10, being God. The subject in these passages, verses 1 through 10, is God is big, prime mover subject. And then today, we're going to consider and enjoy three verbs that he does And then the direct object, this is why English matters, young people, why you should pay attention in English class. The direct object through the rest of the passage are the us's and the we's. Just a few of them. God, being rich in mercy, he made us alive, the verbs. He raised us up, a verb. He seated us, a verb. And the direct objects in these passages, the us, made us alive, raised us up, seated us His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved, for we, in verse 10, are his workmanship, and we should walk in good works prepared in advance for us. We are the direct object of this passage. God is the subject, and today we're going to consider these beautiful verbs, but pay attention as we go along, because the direct object is the same direct object that was there in verses 1 through 3 the same uses and we's, the you Gentiles who are dead in your trespasses and sins, and the we Jews who also are guilty and dead and are by nature children of wrath. God does something with three glorious verbs to a bunch of dead people, a bunch of dead direct objects. And it's so profound, it changes things throughout the rest of the passage. Let's consider these three treasured verbs for a few moments. First of all, In verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Of the three verbs we'll consider this morning, all are dependent, I think, on this very first verb. The others can't happen without this verb happening first. And in some sense, it becomes the most important of the verbs. Given the first three verses, we know something has to happen to what we identified in verses 1 through 3 as spiritual death. Something must happen to this death. Turn to John chapter 3. I don't have a lot of satellites for you to turn to this morning, but this is the first of just a handful. John chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want to point out to you that something has to happen to this spiritual death. We have to be, first of all, quickened. Quickened is what the, it's sort of an old-fashioned way of saying that we are made alive with Christ. We are quickened spiritually. We need something profound to happen to a bunch of dead, spiritually dead folks. John chapter 3 is a beautiful conversation about this reality. John chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't even entertain his line of thought. He takes it right to the beeline, makes a beeline to what's really important. says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. We could interject Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three and say, That which is born of flesh is dead in his trespasses and sins, is by nature children of wrath, And that which is born of spirit, though, is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit If you're confused with Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, it's fleshed out in some ways here in Ephesians chapter 2 where one of the first verbs that God does to a bunch of dead people is he quickens them. He makes them alive through spiritual rebirth. See, we need an altogether new birth. The first one just won't do. We're in cahoots with one another in the first one, and we're all maybe walking around looking like we're alive physically, which we are, but we're spiritually dead. We need a new birth. We need a second birth. And that new birth and new life for us began certainly at the point of conversion. When you believed, when you trusted Christ for the first time, when you were reborn. But the point of this passage is not about your personal rebirth. What goes on in this passage that's so profound is that our quickening happened with his quickening. This with Christ here is important. We are made alive together with Christ. So in a sense... His Easter morning, that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago, and the reason that we can celebrate Easter with everything in us, his Easter morning was our Easter morning. It's hard for us not to understand things in terms of time and date and sequence, but just take date and time and sequence and just throw them aside just for a moment and just consider what happens here. Put these events aside, consequential events, and consider that Easter morning 2,000 years ago, his physical quickening where his dead, gray, cold body all of a sudden began pulsing with life as God raised him from death death to life as he took on some color in his cheeks, as he took that first breath in his chest, inhaled for the first time, that that quickening was your spiritual quickening. That's what Paul tells us. Forget time. Forget sequence. Forget date. Your physical or your spiritual quickening happened there. That's what Paul says. The tense of that verb is an aorist tense verb. It means it happened then. It happened at that point in time. And it's a profound verb. You see why we Christians are the most to be pitied if Christ isn't risen. If there was no quickening for 1 Corinthians 15, 17, listen to this passage. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We could incorporate Ephesians 2 in there and say you are still dead in your trespasses. You are still by nature children of wrath. Apart from Christ's physical quickening, you are still dead in trespasses and sins. But quickened physically, he was. And quickened spiritually, We are, by faith, reborn of water and spirit, by faith. The second verb, turn back to Ephesians. Hopefully, you've kept a finger in there or you're ready to turn back there. The second verb is in verse 6, second and third. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. First of all, he raised us up. It's a fitting progression. We're quickened. And then we're raised, also an aorist tense verb, past tense, done deal. It's over and done with. This isn't talking about your future resurrection. There are plenty of passages that do. This passage is not about your future resurrection when you die and are buried and Jesus comes back and you're caught up in the air with him. Resurrected. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about a resurrection that has already happened to his people When blood started pumping through his holy veins, your quickening and resurrection happened. When he shook off the burial garments, the Shroud of Turin or whatever it might have been, when he shook those things off and he walked out of a freshly unsealed tomb, his Easter morning was and is your Easter morning. His quickening was your spiritual quickening. His resurrection was your spiritual resurrection. There's some passages, just a couple that I'll share with you. You don't need to turn there. I have them right here. You can jot them down and look at them later if you'd like. One that I would encourage a close look is Colossians chapter 3. Here's how the passage goes. If then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, done deal, already. We're not talking about a future physical resurrection. We're talking about a spiritual resurrection that has already happened because of Christ's work. If then you have been raised with Christ Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth, not walking according to the the world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Because your spirit has been resurrected, you are to seek what this resurrected Lord seeks for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6 presents the same sort of concept of your spiritual resurrection. It says, verses 3 and 4 say, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, a.k.a. resurrection. We are resurrected with him. That's not talking a future thing. That's talking now, beginning now that we are walking with him as resurrected people, not walking in death till our bodily resurrection comes, but walking in life, not walking according to the ways of the world, according to what the world values, but walking according to what this risen Lord values. That's what happened to us. That's where Paul takes them. This dead spirit in a living body was quickened and it was raised and it seeks now what a raised Jesus seeks. It no longer values what the world values. It no longer follows the prince of the power of the air but instead it seeks what our risen Lord seeks. He quickened us and he raised us already. The third verb there is that he seated us also in verse 6. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you haven't been a little bit surprised yet to see that he quickened us and that he raised us, hopefully the shock of being seated with Christ will be the cleanup batter with a base fully loaded. I want to make sense of our seating by first considering what his seating meant. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I want to show you two aspects of his seating that will help us make sense of our seating or our being seated with him. First of all, the seated place is the place that is for the victor. Hebrews chapter 1 Beginning in verse 1 introduces these things that are true about Jesus, but I want you to see where it goes. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Watch what unfolds here in regards to his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The first aspect of his being seated has to do with he being seated as the victor who got something done before he sat down. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I like how Colossians develops this imagery. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 develop this image of what he actually got accomplished as the victor. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against, against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and we could add then he sat down as the victor fitting that he seated the seated place is the place for the victor but it's not only the place for the victor it's the place for the ruler also in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13 it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That is ruling language that's introduced for the first time in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. It's one of David's Psalms. And David is not talking about himself here, he's talking about a future Lord. Are a future reigning ruler. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then you see out through the rest of the book of Hebrews this posture of where Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says, Now the point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Later on in Chapter 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because he's done. Earthly priests better stand, but he can sit down. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated as the reigning victor, as the reigning ruler. It's a fitting posture. He rules while God, it tells us in Hebrews 1.13, is placing all things in subjection under his feet. There was a practice in that day and imagery that's important of the defeated crouching like a footstool at the feet of the victor. And the victor would place his feet on top of the defeated. And just envision that our reigning ruler, our Lord who is in session, who was raised and is now seated and in session... It tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that God is placing all things in subjection under his feet. His being seated tells us that the salvation work is done. When he said it's finished from the cross, he meant it. There's no more saving work to be done. We can't add to the work required for our salvation. For he sat down because that work was done. And guess what? He seated us with him. He quickened us. And he raised us and he seated us with this ruler and this victor. And in the placement of being seated with the reigning ruler and victor, he's given us proximity to the victor. He's given us this presence as being near him. And in some weird, shocking way, we somehow share the honor and glory that's due the victor and the ruler. It's certainly honor and glory that we didn't have as a bunch of dead sinners. But this verb, this shocking verb, this third verb, is really just plain scandalous. An honor that's granted to us as we're seated with the victor. And it's also an encouragement to us that we're seated with the ruler. And what do rulers have? They have power. And we're seated with the one who has all the power. And us being seated with him tells us that God is also placing some stuff under our feet that we have the ability to defeat sin, an ability that we didn't have before Christ. But we're seated with the victor and the ruler. We go from captivity and spiritual death to enthronement. Let the marvel of that hit you for a minute. Quickened, raised, and seated. Three wonderful verbs that make all the difference between death and life. I really have two things that I think we should walk away with here from these verbs that I want you to consider. First of all, something that God seems to be emphasizing through Paul here is that these verbs are his, not yours. I enjoy seeing these little phrases like in verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then later in verses 8 and 9, there's some phrases that sort of bring out who's actually doing the work here. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why? you got to ask the question, why is God going to the effort through Paul to point out to us that they're his verbs and not your own? Why is he going to the effort to say this is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast? Man, all it takes is a few minutes looking on Facebook to realize how prone to glory we are, prone to boasting we are. Man, we're glory thieves. But God, through Paul, says these are my verbs, not yours. They're my verbs, and you're the direct object. Don't forget it. Formerly dead direct objects, made alive, raised, and seated. I thought about this phrase, not as a result of works that no man may boast, and I thought about some of these great deliverance stories like Daniel and can imagine how things would have gone down if Daniel had some part in his deliverance in the lion's den, where he might come out of the lion's den and part of the story might be that, man, did you see how I whispered those lions? I'm like a lion whisperer. Did you see how I stared him down? You know, I was in there in the lion's den. I'm surrounded by lions, but I had to make eye contact with him. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to move if you don't move. And I whispered him down. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Think about Daniel describing his 50 caliber, heat-seeking, flat, smooth, flat river rock, bragging on what a great shot he is and what, what, what great instrument he has of death. How ridiculous would that story be if David's trying to steal some of that glory or if Daniel's trying to steal some of that glory? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego coming out of the furnace saying, man, did you see how I danced around in there and avoided the flames? What? Did you see how my mind over matter? I went in there and I like a a guru, like somehow I sort of said, I'm not going to burn up. And my mind just overcame the heat. How ridiculous that would be. He had no part in his deliverance, nor did Daniel, nor did David, nor did so many other stories in our Bibles that all point toward God's glory through and through because they're his verbs. Because if we had a part in it, we'd brag about it. How important is it that you see him as the savior through and through? It's so important that the glory thief in you will attempt to steal some of his glory that's due him alone if you had any part to play. John 6 was, a, was an instrumental passage for me years ago in coming to grips with this reality. I think before preaching through John 6, we're actually going to get some of those sermons. We're in the process of getting some of those sermons uploaded to our website. If you'd ever want to hear those, there are some folks that have asked about these sort of corner-turning sermons in John 6. I think prior to preaching John 6, 35 particularly, um, I had a view of salvation that would probably go something like this. In fact, I described it as something like this. Like we're in an ocean and we're drowning and God pulls up. I mean, we're we're in a pretty bad situation. We're, we're going to die. It's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. We're drowning in the ocean. God pulls up and Jesus throws this life buoy out there. And I mean, it's a beautiful placement. I mean, it's just like he... Uh, He just throws it out there and grabs it and pulls us to the boat, and and then he saves us. That that would be the way I would describe my view of salvation before John chapter six, but after John chapter six, where I realize that no one's comes to Christ except that the Father draws him. That word means drag. And coming in contact, really grip, coming to grips with passages like Ephesians chapter two verses one through three, I realize I'm not drowning in the ocean. I'm dead on the ocean floor dead on the ocean floor. And instead of a boat pulling up where there's a buoy thrown to me beautifully, Jesus dives out of the boat, and does like the man from Atlantis swim down there, the dolphin kick down to the bottom of the ocean, picks me up off the bottom of the ocean dead, pulls me back to the boat, pulls me onto the boat, and revives me from death to life, resuscitates me from death to life. That's a better understanding of what went on there. And in that kind of image, in that kind of illustration, you could see how ridiculous it would be to then have, claim to have some part in it and then have something to brag about. Did you see how I grabbed that buoy? Did you see how I really wrapped my arm around that buoy and how I pulled myself in the boat as he saved me? When you really understand what salvation is, where we're dead on the bottom of the ocean floor, and we have no hope apart from him, start to finish, where he gets every bit of the glory fittingly, appropriately. Exodus chapter 14 was a passage that came to mind for me as I considered this story. It seems to be God's modus operandi where he wants to get all the glory and deliverance. Exodus chapter 14 is the story of the nation of Israel facing the armies of Pharaoh. They're bearing down on them. They're encamped in front of the Red Sea and their only hope is going to be God intervening. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. Figuratively. It's a beautiful image of that. And God through Moses says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord's got the verbs. So you just sit still and watch my deliverance. As the most unlikely thing unfolds where the sea parts, they cross the sea on dry ground and then the sea envelops. The instrument of deliverance becomes the instrument of judgment as Pharaoh's armies or drowned, And then fittingly, Exodus chapter 15 is a song that has no part for man other than to enjoy God's verbs. I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him, my Father's God. I will exalt Him. Him. The Lord is man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It's God that has the verbs. The nation of Israel knew it, at least singing this song they did. Do you realize that he has the verbs in salvation? Start to finish. Top to bottom. God is the mover behind salvation. He's the subject. The verbs are His, done to dead, direct objects, incapable of doing anything on our own. One of the things that I've found over the years that I think makes it very difficult for people to understand salvation this way is that I think in some ways maybe what has been conditioned into some of contemporary Christianity is this view of salvation or relationship with God as sort of a courtship. Then maybe it's movies like Aladdin, you know, where you know Aladdin falls in love with this this gal that he's not supposed to. It's been a long time since I watched it, so if I don't have that right kids, you give me some grace. Um, falls in love with who he doesn't, you know, who he's not supposed to and they end up being together in the end and that that's how true love works is that we court, you know, boy you know, tells great stories about himself and does great physical feats to impress girl and girl's beautiful and that she, she winks at him and, and bats her eyes at him and then they fall in love. That that's the way we view love between us and our creator. But you need to understand the love between God and us and us and him is very different from that. It's not like that at all. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4 verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. We are incapable of love until he loves us first because we're laying on the bottom of the ocean floor. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and in fact, we are enemies of God until he does some verbs on us, until he does something to us. It's not a courtship. He initiates the whole relationship start to finish. He's the mover behind all the verbs. It's his power toward us who believe. And he's worked us worked it for a bunch of dead folks. The second thing that I want you to walk away with this morning is this concept of union with Christ. It's a new concept for me, and in fact, I was sharing with Scott this morning. I had a good portion of the sermon prepared uh, going into the, the end of the day on Thursday and Friday. I typically don't do any study on Friday because I, I just try and s- sort of disconnect from all of this because I go right back into it Saturday and one day a week, I try and sort of uh, it gives us give me a chance to sort of process some things on Friday. But I did happen to be doing some reading on Friday, and I was reading about this passage and reading about this these these references to with Christ. And I bumped into something that I've never really studied thoroughly before. And I realized it is like like that old game on your computer, Minesweeper, where you, you I know some of you did it when you're supposed to be doing your job. Are you supposed to be in class? You know, you're supposed to be studying and listening to the teacher, but you got your computer open and you tap that little section where you tap one of those little mind things where a mind isn't and a whole corner opens up. That's what happened to me on Friday. So I thought Saturday, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. And then Saturday, I was so spent from cutting wood that I could hardly do much. And We'll talk about the wood cutting later. But I commit to you this in these next few minutes, that what I will share with you in these next few minutes, I do have a handle on. But I want to share more, and it might mean another sermon. It might mean a follow-up email. Union with Christ is something that is huge. It's a whole corner of that mind sweeper page. Union with Christ, I confess to you, is not something that I've heard in many sermons. I've not heard it certainly from any evangelists. I haven't heard a lot of evangelists, but the ones I've heard are more about, here's my testimony, here's how coming my life was before Jesus, and here's how awesome it is now which I don't know how anybody's saved by that. Thankfully, the Lord can even use that. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. The Bible evangelists, though, they don't preach those sorts of sermons. You know, The Bible evangelists are like, here, let me tell you God's story and let me tell you what God did for us in Jesus. I I love the Bible evangelists like Philip and Peter, guys like that. But I haven't heard many sermons dealing with union with Christ in a gospel presentation is the point I'm trying to make. And maybe because it feels irrelevant. Maybe the thing that evangelists like to do is they want to preach to felt needs. And there's something in me that enjoys preaching to felt needs. When I know that a bunch of our people are dealing with some sort of felt thing and I've got some medicine for you, man, I can't wait to give you that. I get that. But union with Christ may not tap into or bump into felt needs. It might feel a little bit heady. It might even feel a little bit academic. As we study these 10 verses together last week, this week, and next week, we have to realize, though, that our greatest problem isn't necessarily a felt need. The greatest human problem that we deal with isn't about health, and there's some terrible health issues that people are having to work through right now. Your greatest problem isn't that health issue. It's not about money, (laughs) Our health care are all those things that we might, our money, our mind might go to the minute you say money. It's not about money. It's not about relationships. It's not about marriage. Our greatest need is not about work. It's not about whatever you might put in there. Our greatest problem is unseen spiritual death while we go on living. That's the greatest human problem. And it's an epidemic, by the way. No one gets, goes away with it or no one gets away unscathed by it. It's an epidemic. Our greatest problem is our union with a man named Adam. The last place I'll have you turn this morning is Romans chapter 5. Just share a few passages from Romans chapter 5. Our greatest problem has to do with our relationship and union to a man named Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. See, it's an epidemic. All are connected to this guy, Adam. All are dead in our trespasses and sins and by nature children of wrath. Look at verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Our greatest problem that we will or have or are going to ever experience is our union with this guy named Adam. And our greatest problem may seem the most impractical problem, the most impractical truth, but whatever it may seem, it is is an eternal problem that we will deal with for eternity in one way or the other. We will either be protected from it or we will deal with the consequences of it for eternity. That's a reality. You can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't touch it, but that is a reality. And eternity is a long time, by the way. Longer than a lifetime. It is our biggest problem that we will ever experience Ever is the consequences, whether we feel them or not, the consequences of our relationship to this guy named Adam. We are in Adam. He is our federal head, is a term that want to acquaint you with he is our federal head we are in union with Adam and our greatest blessing let me tell you some some of the coolest blessings that we experience are family friends a good job health those are great blessings but the greatest blessing maybe a successful business maybe those are all great blessings I'm not going to say they're not But those are not the greatest blessings we will ever experience. The greatest blessing we will ever experience is that somehow we are relieved of this relationship and this union with this guy named Adam. Because for us, that means death. That means spiritual death. And it means eternal death. Our greatest blessings are these three verbs and what God does through them. And this was a real encouragement to me. Paul makes up three words. They're not anywhere else in Greek literature. These three words where he makes us alive with, where he raises us with, where he seats us with, are three made-up words. <laughs> he put a little circle C after them. He put a little copyright on them. He made up new words because they're a new parking spot for a new thought. The things that's never been accomplished before, that have never been done before. He made us alive, soon. Zoopoye is the word. Zoo is where we get the, the name Zoe. We have little Zoe fields in here. Her name means life, but it's life with Christ. We are made alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ, Sune Gero. He seated us with Christ, Sune Kathitzo. The little sune phrase in there is the with, and after each of these is the word, the name Christo, because that's the only way those things are going to happen to us is that they happen with Christ. And here's the good news of the gospel that evangelists often leave out, at least the ones that I've heard, and is maybe the best news that we ever consider this month or this year is that what happens to Jesus by faith happens to us. Union with Christ is the good news. We are quickened with him. We are raised with him, and we are seated with him. That is the good news. We're no longer in Adam. We're not in union with Adam anymore. We have a new federal head. We are now in Christ. By faith, he becomes our new head. You're made alive with him. You're raised with him. You're seated With him. That's the good news of this passage. Those verbs are awesome. But if they happen apart from with with Christ, they don't happen to you and they don't happen to me. But they happen with Christ to us. So what happened to Christ happens to us. He's the one that we need to be united to. Listen to this passage that's still in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men because of our relationship to that federal head, Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, for those who are united to Christ by faith. For as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, as in all. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made sinners. Righteous. The good news of the gospel has got to be that we are somehow united to someone other than Adam. And that's why passages that are so familiar to us, like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, are so dear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, i.e., not in Adam. That's the good news of this passage. Those verbs that happen with Christ happen with you. You have a new federal head. There's no condemnation for you now. You're not dead in your trespasses and sins anymore because what happened to Jesus happens to you if you are in Christ by faith. This little phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the Lord, or in Jesus, happens 216 times in Paul. You think it matters to him? 216 times in Paul. It happens 26 times in John, either the Gospel of John or the letters of John. You think that matters? That we understand what it means to be in Christ and not in Adam? It's the good news. And it's everything for us. It's good news, but I'll tell you too, it's sort of bad news in some ways. Because it also means as you're going to experience this quickening, as you're going to experience this resurrection, as in Christ by faith you experience this seated with him, it also means you experience the hard stuff he went through. Romans chapter 8 Verse 16 says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if you're united to him, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see that union with him being everything. So as he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, so you too will experience the sorrow and grief of living in a fallen world. Man, he wept at Lazarus' tomb, didn't he? Death will still break your heart, even though you have the solution. You understand what the solution is. That's when I have a tough time with Christians that just don't ever feel any sadness or any grief. I'm not encouraging a bunch of eeyores. I'm not encouraging you to be a bunch of sad folk all the time. But if you ever experience it and you're like, wow, a Christian supposed to be God's good all the time. Man, sometimes life is stinking hard because we're living in a fallen world and we're living in flesh that is decaying and dying. And we're going to fellowship in his sufferings. We're going to fellowship in his grief. We're going to fellowship too in his betrayal, his difficulty, his loneliness, his sadness, even because of your faith. Some of you will or are going through very real issues right now because of your faith. Being faithful to God means it's going to be really hard in this next 20, 30, 40 years. Some of you are going through that right now. It's because of your union with Christ. But you can enjoy that same union means that you quickened, you're raised, and you're seated. Man, union with Christ is good news. You're going to experience the hard stuff, but you'll also experience the victory and the power and the deliverance because of your union with him ask you this question about your view of your Christian walk. Is it something that you view that it's just something you do? Is Christianity for you something that you do? You go to church, you pay your tithes, you help folks that have needs maybe, you try to be good to folks, you don't gossip, you don't slander, you don't talk ugly about other people, you try not to get angry at anybody. Is that your view of Christianity? Christianity. Those those things should be connected to your understanding of Christianity, but they shouldn't be the first place you go. The first place you should go, the foundational place you should go, is seeing yourself as in union with Christ. That's the first place you should go. Do you see your Christian walk, your Christian life, as some sort of daily performance? This is common, (laughs) y'all. I tend to do this at times, too where you have some good Christian days and you have some bad ones. You have some mountaintop seasons and then you have some valleys. And you hope that preaching will sort of keep you out of those valleys and help you through those bad days. Okay, a lot of preaching does that as it preaches to felt needs. This sermon's not about that. This sermon is not about the activities of the Christian life. This sermon is about the identity of the Christian life. Where you will learn to see yourself first Not as somebody that's in this thing that you're doing stuff, but somebody that is this thing, that has been reckoned already. Error's tense verbs where you have been quickened, you have been raised, you have been seated, period, done deal. What happens to Jesus happens to you. Happened. Happened. Do you see yourself first as that? And this is what Paul fed the Ephesian church with. They're living in the shadow of the temple of Artemis. They're living in the Roman Empire. If there's a harder place to be a Christian in the world, our time, I don't know, well, maybe in Syria. A very difficult place to be a Christian. And this is what Paul ministers to them with. This is what he equips them with. Not tips for keeping them out of the valleys. Not tips for helping them through the bad days. He gets very practical later in the book. But first, he makes a beeline to the essence of what they should know about who they are. The doing will come later. Let's talk about being married, folk, or talk about being kids, or talk about these household rules later. But first, understand who you are. You were dead, but now you're spiritually alive. You're quickened, and you're raised And you are already seated. You're not seeking things of the world. You're not living according to the course of the world and what the world values. You're living according to what the already resurrected Lord values. Man. He gives them practical goods. Or he gives them the real goods to fuel the practical goods. Is what he does. Union with Christ is the good news. He doesn't spend much, if any, time in this letter talking about what's going to happen to them. He spends instead, he equips them with, spends his time equipping them with what has already happened to them. Think about that for a minute. Can that equip you this morning of what has already happened to you? As you're going through life, marriage, job, work, relationships, all those other things that we mentioned that are all part and parcel of life, can you first see yourself as quickened, raised, and seated? What has already happened to you, unioned, united to Christ? He's just prayed for them for understanding, and now he's equipping them so they can hold on to what's actually true of them so they can hold on to what's actually true of them in the middle of their difficulties. You were dead, but God quickened you with Christ. God raised you already with Christ. God seated you with the ruler and the victor with Christ. And they're his verbs, by the way, so that no man may boast. They've already been accomplished in you and on you by your union, by faith, with Christ. That's the good news. For the supper this morning, I'm going to tell a story. It's a story of a, it's a Bible story. It's not a story that happened to me. It's a story that happened to a guy named Lazarus. It's a fitting story. I've referenced John already this morning, the story of Nicodemus. John is a wonderful book. We spent eight years of the life of our church in John, and you would expect in that period of time it became dear to us. John chapter 11 became especially dear to us as a church. We have a a series of sermons online that are called the He Stinketh series. And it's actually where our library begins. I don't remember, can't remember what year that was, but we were in John 11 is where our library currently begins, although we're going back and fleshing out some of that in front of it. But John 11 became dear to us, and John in general. John is a book that's written for a specific purpose. It's not a history book. Okay, all the Gospels have a purpose, but you need to learn to read the Gospels and figure out that they're not little history books that are just telling you some 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 stories. They're actually written for a purpose. And John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing we may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John. And in the book of John, he does seven signs, miracles. He calls them signs. And they they too are very strategic and specific. Not all of his miracles are shared in the book of John, only these seven. The first of which was the wedding at Cana, where the waters turned to wine. The last of which is this story about Lazarus. And it's a beautiful picture of what's been done for us, but it's a beautiful picture about what we're about to do. So just sit back and listen or you can follow along with me. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read some excerpts. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 6, when he learned that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It wasn't dark enough yet. It wasn't midnight yet. The black velvet pitch wasn't black and velvet enough quite yet for the magnolia. He stayed two days longer where he was and didn't rush off to Lazarus' aid because he wanted Lazarus to be stone cold dead. Oh, and decaying and stinking by the time he shows up. Where they could see that Lazarus is laying on the bottom of the ocean floor, dead in his trespasses and sins, figuratively. It's a beautiful picture. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place. Where he was. Later, he says, okay, now let's head off to Bethany. Verse 14, it says, Jesus told his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. I'm glad it wasn't dark enough yet so that you may believe. It wasn't midnight yet, but now it is, for he stinketh. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Anybody ever had a cast on their arm for a couple days? You take that thing off, you're like, oh my goodness, what crawled up in there? Imagine what at this point, this is, I mean, Lazarus is gone. He's four days dead. No embalming practices would prevent what was going on in that tomb. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So when Martha, verse 20, heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's faith. You can't fault Martha for wanting that. And Jesus tells her in verse 25, he says, you know what? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Down in verse 32, the story continues. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She sounds just like Martha. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, a man acquainted with grief and sorrows a man who had the answer, a man who is the answer, and yet he's still here in a fallen world facing death, a death of somebody that he loves. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And it says, Jesus wept. God wept over the condition of man. Man, it sounds like our passage, Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us. Because of his mercy. We'll consider those motives next week. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? The story continues there in verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will surely be an odor. For he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Watch my verbs, you can almost hear him say. Watch, just be still and watch. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus. Come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Man, it is a beautiful, beautiful illustration of being dead in your trespasses and sins, being quickened from death to life, being raised. And the seated is not there yet, but we're getting there. One of the things that I enjoyed so much about this progression, moving verse by verse, that I don't know I would have seen if we hadn't moved verse by verse, begins in chapter 12. The story continues. It picks up. We don't know how much time passed between chapters 11 and 12, but listen how chapter 12 continues. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where the dead guy was. Remember the dead guy? Remember the guy that's stinking, four days dead, in a sealed tomb, wrapped with burial cloths. Yeah, that dead guy whom Jesus had raised from the dead in case you forgot. Now John knows this is just a chapter later, although chapter markings weren't there. It's just a few verses later. He doesn't have to remind you, but he's making the point to remind you. Remember the dead guy? Yeah, that get dead guy. What's gonna happen next? So they gave a dinner for him there for Jesus. And Martha served, and to me, just a fitting, beautiful picture of this whole story and a beautiful picture of how the supper fits in. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table, seated with the victor and having a meal. Isn't it beautiful and isn't it fitting? Let me pray and we'll distribute our elements and eat with our Savior. God we are so thankful for this picture of our desperate situation and your wonderful verbs. God, I count us a surprised and amazed bunch of direct objects. God, we enjoyed today what you did for us in Christ, in quickening us when you quickened him, in raising us to walk in newness of life when you raised him, and for seating us in the place of the ruler and the victor when you seated him. God, I pray this sermon will work toward us seeing ourselves first as yours and understanding what you've done for us in Christ and seeing ourselves as united to Christ by faith first. And God, I pray all the actions and all the do's and all the don'ts and all the activities will flow out of that wonderful reality of our union with our new and better Adam. God, we are thankful too for this beautiful story of a man named Lazarus. We count ourselves in league and in cahoots with Lazarus due for death, walking according to the ways of the world, valuing what the world values, by nature children of wrath. We're thankful that you spoke into dead tombs. And that you quickened us, and that you've raised us, and as you've seated us with the, with the victor, that we can have a meal with him. We marvel that you've even accomplished any of these things, and much less that you invite us to your table. We enjoy it, Lord. And we end this morning where we began, thankful and grateful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. Imagine that meal, John 12. Can you imagine where they're sitting there, Mary and Martha, Jesus and Lazarus. I don't know who else was there. Somebody's there. Uh, There were others there. but Can you imagine the conversation? I was thinking about how the conversation would go down. Can you imagine what it would have been like as Lazarus is sitting there and he's like, man, y'all remember when... When Jesus was here and I was dead, you know, and how I, how I came out of that tomb, remember how I was, like strutted out of that tomb and shook off my grave cloth, you know? You remember that? That's pretty awesome, wasn't it? Mary, Martha, Jesus. I'm pretty, pretty cool, pretty awesome. Me and, you know, when I was dead and you raised me to life, you know? That's ridiculous, isn't it? I bet the conversation went something like this. Like, Jesus, I remember just a few weeks ago or days ago or months ago, whatever, when, when Lazarus was so dead... <laughs> You remember how bad he stunk? Golly, he was so dead and he had no hope. Yeah, and Lazarus is like, yeah, I was just as dead as I could possibly be. But you completely raised me from death to life. You did all the work, Jesus. I didn't do anything except walk out of the tomb after you'd already raised me. I'm walking in newness of life. That's about all I did. But the saving part, the quickening part, the raising part, that's what you did. And now I'm going to sit and rest in you. What a great conversation. I would have enjoyed that conversation. You can imagine how ridiculous the earlier one would have been, where Lazarus is trying to share some of the work. So as we take the supper together, we could share likely what Lazarus' story was, what Mary and Martha had to say about the whole thing. God, you do all the work. Every part of it is yours. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. But you quickened us with Christ. You raised us with Christ. You seated us with Christ. You united us to our Savior, and we enjoy Him together by faith. Let's take and eat. Let's enjoy His work together as we take and drink. Let's continue in song. Terrorism wise. Um, the extremist types of stuff is only Christ and can only be Christ. I mean, we can, we can talk about military action. I was in the military. I'm not uh, a pacifist. I understand that there, there are and believe that there are times for just war, but I don't think the answer is going to be in the long run. I think that will be a band aid. What we need to pray about is that Jesus will turn hearts and that he will make alive with Christ, he will raise and he will seat unlikely people. Some people that you would never think whose hearts could be changed. Some people that are in these decision places that are uh, inflicting these sorts of uh, terrorist attacks. So let's pray about that right now together. God, it's a big prayer. What a heartbroken people we are this morning, thinking about what's happened in Paris this week. We're heartbroken because people that are just going about their daily lives, just living, um, had that taken from them or had a front row seat to others losing their lives um, and Lord, all for a lie, um, we confess and enjoy this morning that we know the one true God. And Lord, we beg you to open the eyes of hearts of unlikely people to quicken, raise, and seat the least likely of people so that your name will be renowned and famous. And we pray that you would use Christians in hard contexts, uh, Iraq, Syria, Paris right now, that you would use Christians to be brave courageous, true, with the message of Christ alone as the answer. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give them um, a view of what Christ is seeing from his royal throne, that they would seek the things above, that they would fellowship in his sufferings, that they would see union with Christ means likely some terrible suffering and terrible pain and maybe even terrible loss as they are salty, bright, and aromatic in those really dark places. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Paris, in Syria, in other really hard places right now. And Lord, we pray that you would sustain them like manna. They would just have just enough grace for the day and that you would get them through the next day and that you would use them to win the least likely, the unlikelies, to trust in Christ alone. We beg for that, Lord. It's a big prayer and we beg that you would work that somehow. Just for this, as far as those families and those people that are dealing with the loss today, Lord, I pray, too, that you would turn their hearts in your direction, that they would see the bankruptcy of life and the loss of life and the decay and the death that's right in front of them and that they would pine for a game changer, that they would pine for a new Adam and a new union. Lord, we pray that you would turn them in their grief, that you would use that as fertile soil Uh, well-cultivated for the good news of Christ alone, that they would find somehow hope in this, that they would find that you could work even all things like this together for good for those called according to your purpose. We entrust this terrible, heartbreaking situation to you. We pray for the leadership over there, Lord. We pray for uh, their attentiveness to you and your best for them in these hours as they're dealing with in the wake of what's, what's happened. We entrust this people to you and thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning to our creator. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn it over to Scott. Video.